Welcome back to the Wrong Advice Podcast. I'm your host, John Picciuto, and I'm very excited to have my guest today, the one and only Mr. Kevin Kelly. Kevin, how are you doing today? Oh, it's really, really great to be here. Thank you for inviting me. I'm looking forward to this. This is going to be fun. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Can you uh, give a quick introduction to the listeners to who you are? Yeah, I'm um, Kevin Kelly, the um, senior maverick at Wired Magazine. I was one of his co-founders 30 years ago, a long time ago. I write books about the culture of technology, and um, I'm also uh, a photographer and an artist, and posting one piece of art a day for the past couple of years, and I um, am also a traveler and an Asia fan and fanatic. We could talk about Asia forever. My wife is Chinese, (laughs) and I am... um, I'm in California because that's the closest I could get to Asia in the U.S. <laughs> nice. Um, I'm excited to have this conversation. I uh, got a preview of your new book, which I think uh, kind of hit right at the right time in my life, which is kind of funny. Um, you know, I'm at that age where 37 years old, my life has gone pretty much not at all according to plan. Um, and I like the idea of having this conversation with someone who's wrote a book about their life, their experiences. Um, can you give me a little bit of backstory about the new book and uh, sort of what your aim and your goal was when you started uh, putting pen to paper on it? <laughs> sure. So the book is called Excellent Advice for Living, and it's wisdom I wish I'd known earlier. It's a little tiny book for me. I like to make big, overwhelming books, but this is the smallest book I've ever written. And it's just little tiny bits of advice um, almost like a tweet inside, 450 of them. And it began by me writing down um, little bits of wisdom that I wanted to use myself to remind myself to change my behavior. So like uh, a piece of advice I learned from one of the editors at Whole Earth 40 years ago was um, if if you get an invitation to do something in like six months from now, um, ask yourself, uh, would I want to do this if it was tomorrow morning? Okay, it's like, because if the answer is like, no, then you should say no now. So so you want to kind of future project yourself. It kind of saves all kinds of trouble. It's like, yeah, you have an invitation to go uh, give a talk at this high school, whatever it is, in six months. That sounds good. But then it's like, would I want to do that tomorrow morning? Uh, no, I don't think I do. So I'm going to say no. And so to use that as a way of kind of managing your calendar, that was a, a practical piece of advice. I wrote it down try to say myself when I got the invite, do I want to do this tomorrow? Do I want to do this tomorrow? So I began writing these down and then I realized that um, a lot of it was things that I wished I had known earlier that, 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 that just came to me very late that I kind of learned and it would have been much better had I known those earlier. And so I have three kids, they're young adults and I just, we did not give them a lot of advice. We were kind of our idea was like to model behavior rather than to say it, because I don't think kids pay attention to what you say. And so, um, but I thought these were things that maybe they should have heard. So I started to write them down to give them as a gift on my 68th birthday. I thought I could come up with 68 of them. And um, I did, and they were very popular. And they seemed very helpful. And I started doing it every birthday. And I found out that I had a lot to say. And I began to kind of actually to kind of like work on them. Most of the work was trying to take out words, was to reduce it down into some little telegraphic bit. 
And that's one of my bits of advice, which is art is in what you leave out. So I was trying to leave out stuff and reduce it to something that a person could remember, something practical that would be useful. And that's what the book is now. And put it all together in a little thing that I could hand to my kids, leave around, let them pursue it, and re be reminded that it's opening up at random here. When you lead, your real job is not to create more followers, but to create more leaders. Mm. Okay. Kevin, I so, got to be honest. There is a, a recurring theme on my podcast, and the theme mostly centers around I'm 37. Could 20-year-old John have imparted any of the life lessons that I've learned over the 17 years since and been able to sort of cut down on that learning curve, right? Like, would it have been yeah. possible for me to learn things at an earlier time, or does life right, processes right, right, right it at its own pace um right. being that this book is sort of right in line with my questions that i ask quite right, frequently right, right. and you let's call yourself 30 years ahead of me what is your thought on that do you think that you know 68 year old kevin could have learned the lessons or known the lessons that 38 year old kevin had or, or the other way around yes i i, I think i think I, I think it would have benefited uh, uh, from from having these because when I had these things in this little capsule form, I do repeat them to myself. And um, like, like um, prototyping things, learning how to prototype. It took me such a long time in late in life before I understood that you have to make versions of things that you're willing to throw away make, to completion, making something all the way to actually completing it and then throwing it away and doing it again. That was very, that was, it seemed kind of insane to me. It would have been insane to me, but actually having this idea of, of someone saying, no, 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 this is this is what you need to do. This is a good thing. Um, just repeat this to yourself. Um, so so um, I think I have benefited from having heard, and sometimes these bits of advice, in, in, I put them in my own words, but I heard them in some fashion or another as I was going along, and they benefited from me. So I do believe in the virtues and benefits of advice giving. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. I, I completely agree with that. I just curiously wonder if the lessons that you learned later in life could have been something that you had learned earlier in life. Or well, does the could. benefit yeah. of time – oh, they, okay. Oh, 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 oh I see you're saying – no, no. You're, you're saying did I need to have that maturity to be able to absorb yeah. advice over time? Um, I – it's a tricky one. It's a tricky one to answer. I don't know how to answer it, but I, I'm guessing that it would have been better to have heard it earlier than later. So, <laughs> so yeah. here's the thing. There, someone else said, and it's not in my book, but someone else says this great line, which is, everything has already been said, but nobody was listening, so we need to say it again. Oh, I like that. All right? Okay, everything's already been one. said. Nobody was listening, we need to say it again. And that's the thing about this advice, is that I think... You, I think you need to hear it more than once. I think mm -hmm. it needs to be repeated. And part of what I'm trying to do is repeat it using it in my own words. And I think that, um, I, I think that I, 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 yes, it does help to be mature and have other experiences to uh, kind of finally understand the genius of a piece of advice. But I think it's good to have heard it, even if you don't absorb it at once. 
I think mm-hmm. it needs to be repeated. And so yeah. um there's the adage that, you know, history is bound to repeat itself. I think that probably ties directly into the fact that a lot of times people are much more concerned about with what they're going to say versus what they're hearing. Um, I think that's why society would benefit greatly by a lot more therapy. <laughs> well, um, a lot more li- listening. Listening is, is, is a superpower. And I talk about that in the book to really listen. And part of what you the how to be a good listener is not to be thinking about what you're going to reply with, but to be asking yourself what's not being said as the person's mm. talking. You, mm. so, you, so this kind of active, engaged listening is a superpower. And um, I, I think people need to and can get better at listening. And I know that for my own self, actually, I'm a pretty good listener. And um, I've had conversations with people like a dinner party or something where I have almost said nothing. And they have talked most of the whole time and they'll go away saying I was a great conversationalist. <laughs> I like that. Because, I'm curious. What... <laughs> because, because I was listening because we had a conversation, right? Because the conversation was very one-sided, but nonetheless, that listening is what they feel. It's a feeling. And the feeling is that the other person is listening. Yeah. I think uh, there's a uh, old proverb or whatever you know god gave you two ears and one mouth so proportionally your conversation (laughs) should be as such um yeah i'm curious what the uh what the best piece of advice someone's ever given you is Mm. well um i'm trying to uh so, so I, I, so yeah, um, uh, it's very hard to say what's best, but here's a good piece of advice someone gave me, which was um, to make as many rituals in our family as as we could, mm-hmm. and um, that's something that uh, again I wish I had known earlier. And one of the very few regrets I have in my life is that we didn't have more rituals in our family for our kids. And the ritual is almost anything you do three times in a row. Um, it, it can be frivolous. Like one ritual we did have was I cooked pancakes every Sunday morning for 20 years, right? That was just, and that, that was a very, it becomes very anchoring to kids. They just, they just come to anticipate that, to, to, to depend on that. It becomes foundational. It gives them identity that helps them grow their own identity. And so I wish I had done more of that, but, but um, his advice was, to 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 do that and and talking about the way in which it was also in terms of rites of passage having a ritual and rites of passage which uh, was really important for our family and what we did and um i had wished that i had heard earlier in our in our life i mean 20 years is a pretty good run for uh you know i happen to take my dad for pancakes once a week so i uh i think there you go. that we have a very similar ritual we we to be fair we go out for them just because there's a that's place okay. in town it, it <laughs> that we love matter. Yeah. it's whatever is easy that's the whole thing is these things can be really really easy and so um it can be something you do weekly it could be something you do monthly seasonally every season you do this you hang up the flag or you change the ornament here that's what our family does or it could be yearly that we do for some holiday in fourth of july we always do this and that anticipation for the family becomes really important. And that anchoring is the word I want, that kind of grounding 
and it's, it's dependable, reliable. That's what kids crave in lots of the rest of your life, maybe heads up and crazy, all kinds of things going on and drama. But if they can have that, that ritualistic dependability, it's very, very, very comforting. Yeah, I agree that I think uh, I was lucky to have, you know, picturesque childhood growing up in New Jersey, right, right. you know, Italian household holidays were a big part of growing up. And it's nice that like, as I've gotten older, those rituals have now sort of parted over to, you know, having Christmas in my brother's house or my sister's house. Right, 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 right. Uh, those, those transformative moments as a child, now getting to relive those as an uncle to, you know, five nieces and nephews and things like that. It's just, it's a nice, uh, I, th I think that's a nice sentiment for sure. Um, with uh, having the benefit of hindsight, you've had a fairly prolific career, not just in writing, but in media, um, like you mentioned, Wired, um, and a number of other publications that you've worked with. What was it about, call it the written word, call it, you know, media publication, et cetera, that initially drove you to sort of, you know, take that focus for your own personal career? Well, I was a very roundabout and inadvertent um, writer-editor. I began... Um, I was a college dropout and I got interested in photography in the very early seventies, sixties and seventies, when it was not very popular at all. I mean, very few people had cameras. My family had a, my parents had a Brownie camera that had a 24 uh, exposure roll, black and white that they did one roll a year. Wow. It took 24 pictures a year. So I made stuff as a kid. And there is no record of it. I made a nature museum in our basement and stuff. And there's like not a single picture from that. It's like, you know, they did one at Christmas. They did one at Easter, one of the kids at Halloween. And um, so anyway, photography was not a thing. I became really interested in photography. Um, and I was photographing in Asia on my own assignment, my own crazy idea. But um, basically I came to it through images first and writing captions and traveling. And I, when I started to travel, I, I was traveling very intensively in Asia in a place where there was very few guidebooks and very few information. And I became, uh, the one thing I became expert on, the thing I started to know more than anybody else was about Asia and traveling in Asia. And so I started writing about that, reviewing the books and started a mail order company selling the books. I started writing a newsletter. So it came from having something to say. When I was um, younger, I didn't have anything I wanted to say. I didn't know anything. And so I was photographing and, and I began to have something I wanted to communicate with. But I didn't really learn how to write until I was online, which was in the early 80s. And I didn't even know how to type. And that was where I was communicating Again, you're not trying to, in school, you kind of learn how to write that kind of, it feels like you're showing off. It feels like you're kind of trying to impress. You're kind of trying to write for the teacher, say things that the teacher will like or that seem intelligent, whatever it is. But when you're sending an email to somebody, you don't care about that. You're just like, <laughs> I am, here's the thing I'm trying to say to you, right? And that kind of writing is how I learned how to write, was posting on things and trying to communicate something that was complicated. And so I learned how to write by trying to communicate. And um, I did, uh, I went to a, um, I went to a, my first scientific conference and I was blogging 
we didn't call it then. I was this was eighty nine. I was blogging each talk. Uh, each after each talk, I would move a summary of what that talk was, which I posted on the well, and um, that was the first. That was my first public writing, um, and from that, the reaction to that was was there were so many people that liked that, even though it was like. You know, blogging a conference. It was who who did that was the first time that was done. That was the <laughs> genesis for getting a book deal. Was was I wanted to expand the, this topic and I wanted to go deeper and you know using the little blog posts, which were only like a paragraph each, was the um, was the what convinced or persuaded whoever the publisher to say, yeah, I think I think you can write. So for me, I learned to write by um, not writing a book, not writing magazine articles, but what we might call today blogging. Mm-hmm. That's cool. I think you know, it's funny. We have like a sort of weirdly uh, symbiotic sort of upbringing because like I, I was doing a lot of writing on the on the internet in the twenties and my twenties, not in the twenties. Right, right. Um, and uh, it's something that I've gotten away from a lot. And uh, you said something that kind of really struck at me. Um. There's something interesting about this impetus that I have to communicate with people and have conversations about life and impart the very limited amount of knowledge that I've experienced in my own life um, that may or may not be beneficial or helpful to someone else in the world. And it seems like to me that you have sort of you know, driven a very similar path. Um, what do you think it is about your own life and your own experiences that warrant you telling other people about them, that warrant someone else picking up one of your books and reading about, you know, Kevin Kelly. Yeah. I mean, in, in a certain sense, um, I have a very um, unorthodox, we'll call it that unconventional career path, which is non-career in some, in some ways I've done lots of different things. So I have, I have a very kind of broad um, gadfly, you know, um, non-linear life. And, uh, the thing I say in the book, my excellent advice book, is that um, uh, the rich have a lot of money, the time, the wealthy have a lot of time. Um, it's easier to be wealthy than rich, and so I consider myself very wealthy because I've had control of my time. And I kind of by dropping out of college, I kind of signed up for what I was imagining was kind of like you know perpetual poverty, not having very much money, but having control over my time and what I did. So I, if I was imagining myself when I was in the twenties, I would in my, what I would be in the sixties and seventies was I would be like some little house I built by myself from some farm without many possessions, but you know doing my little art and making things and um, and, and to some extent that's true because I am making things I can't show you right here, but I have a whole thing of stuff that I've made and um, but but um, that's what I was thought I was signing up for was was that kind of um, success. I was defining it as having time and control of my time. And that's sort of what I have always made the choices of in my own life is trying to have as much control over my time as possible, because I think that's the most power you can have. That's the only finite thing there is in the world today. The only thing that is limited is our own time and everything else is becoming abundant and we're living in this abundance, but our own time is really precious. And so maintaining control of that is 
what I was really after in, in, in my career. And um, the thing that I did not learn till later on, again, another bit of wisdom I wish I'd known earlier was because, I mean, I didn't really sort of, I knew that, but I didn't really be able to, to state that. But what, what, what the realization about controlling my time and gaining my time is that the highest leverage thing I can do with whatever money I had was to hire someone else's time, was to get someone else to give their time to my project. It's like, I mean, that's, that's what it was. And so this idea of like hiring others and outsourcing was not in my natural thing. I was a kind of a hippie do-it-yourselfer, building my own house and all that kind of stuff. I learned that actually I would do better doing something else and then hiring the carpenter to work on it or, uh, you know, starting something I could, I didn't, I couldn't program. I can't program. No, you can hire a programmer. That was like, I never, uh, the whole earth version of me was, no, you have to do it yourself. It's not like you've got to learn it yourself. No, no, no. You want to, you want to leverage other people's time to, mm -hmm make your dreams and so um so that's so so that path of having those experiences um i think um gave me a kind of a broad view of the world that um i think makes advice a little bit more what's the word i want well-rounded a little bit mm -hmm. more um approachable um and I think I, the very last bit of advice from the book is summaries. The very last bit, it says, advice like these are not laws. They're like hats. If one doesn't fit, try another. So, I, so, so I'm suggesting if my advice doesn't work for you, try a different one. It's like yeah. there's, there's no guarantee that what I'm saying is going to work for you or for anybody for that matter, but they worked for me. Yeah. I think you touched upon something that is hitting home significantly for my, me right now, because I think during COVID, a lot of people realize the value of time and right, realize right. the sheer finite amount that we experience as yeah. human beings on earth. Um, and with the benefit of that pandemic, I don't know that I would have been able to have done the things that I've done in the last three years of my life, started this podcast, created a whole photography life for myself. Um, I am without question benefiting from that notion that the time we have here is finite. And right, what right. I do with that time is incredibly important because I only get so little of it. Right. I have also very recently been wondering if I'm wasting time. Am I wasting hmm. any aspect of my life of my limited amount of time here doing dumb shit, right? Watching right, right, Netflix right. movies, you know, <laughs> doing things that don't fundamentally matter in life. And I'm struck with this uh, blockage of what is the right usage of one's time here during a right, life, right, right? Right, right, right. I am living my perfect life. I get to take photos for a living. I get to travel for a living. I get to do this podcast for a living. My life is perfect. But you, you constantly get struck with this 
blockage of what else is there. And I think it's very common for people in their 30s or mid to late Mm -hmm, 30s mm -hmm. to get to this point where they've checked off a lot of boxes of life's Mm -hmm. checklist. They've got the house. They've got the 2.5 kids. Mm -hmm. They've got the job. They've got the car. And you're left with wondering, well, what else is there? And I'm curious in your own experience, in your own wisdom, what that moment was like for you in your own 30s, 40s, et cetera, and what you sort of learned from that experience as you've gone uh, through that timeline yourself. Yeah, you're right. I mean, I think I was um, wanderlusting through my 20s. I had a camera. I was on a self-assignment to photograph the vanishing parts of Asia, which I did. But but when I was around the mid-30s, I decided, well, I need to graduate from what I'm doing right now and um, do something that was um, more, like you said, where am I going? What does this matter? What kind of contribution am I making? Um, And so I decided to switch and do things differently. And, um, but I didn't really kind of have any idea. I had some ideas about what I would like to try and uh, I did that, but I didn't have any kind of grand idea. And the way I would say it right now is I didn't know what I was trying to optimize. I was, I I think I had some idea. I would try to optimize my own learning and I wanted to learn new things and different things. And that's what I would optimize. But in terms of like what mattered, I didn't have a, I didn't have an agenda. And I think, um, uh, I think that came very slowly with my work in going into the technology end, which is another story of, of um, starting the first public access to the internet with the well, the first hackers conference, you know, doing wired and all that kind of stuff. Um, I think I began to see the role of technology in the world and my role with it. So I became, uh, so, so the, I think that 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 journey of of starting to work on things that mattered was not there was not an epiphanal moment where I suddenly I had the ha. Huh. I think it came slowly through years of doing this and then seeing what it was that we were doing differently, what it was that I could do that nobody else could do, what it was that the magazine could do that nobody other other magazines could do. So that was like I would say years. I would say like maybe a decade of kind of like feeling the way and understanding a little bit more about um, my role in the, in the world. And so, um, and I would say that I was not even able to articulate that until maybe even certainly in my sixties. Wow. So, so, so you're so, saying there's hope for hope for me. I'm yet. saying there's <laughs> tremendous hope. So, so the thing is, is that, um, I think this journey of trying to come up to do something that only you can do will take all your life. Mm. For most of us, it will take all our lives to get there. There may be some mutant freaks who are born knowing very early what it is they do, they do best and do only. But for most of us, it's going to take most of our lives and we're going to have lots of dead ends and right turns and detours and back outs and all kinds of things very meandering and that's true for every remarkable person that i know the famous even the billionaires their route to there was very very improbable and unlikely um and that is the path and by the way 
having the benefit of hanging around with some of these people at the very highest level is they're still asking the same question. What am I going to do when mm -hmm. I grow up? Right. Having a, billion, having a billion dollars does not answer that question. It's actually a huge burden and distraction. It is unbelievably imprisoning that, uh, that amount of money because you can't do anything with it other than to be responsible for it. I mean, spending it doesn't help. You can't spend it fast enough. Yeah. Right? I mean, you literally cannot. And so it becomes this thing that they have to just grapple with. And it's very distorting. And it doesn't help them with doing stuff that matters. It's just another 10 things they've got to do today. So one of my bits of advice to all your listeners is that if it at all possible, do not make a billion dollars. Okay. <laughs> I'm sure they would really, greatly disagree with really, that. Really? <laughs> no, no. Make a hundred million. Okay. That's fine. Okay. But don't make a billion dollars. Don't, don't go for it. It's, it's like famous. You don't, you do not want to be famous. You don't want to be yeah. famous, famous. You really don't. It's just a, a, a real burden. So, so this idea of it's going to take all your life. It's going to take mm -hmm. all your life to figure out. You're going to constantly be changing it. You're going to be improving it. You're going to be working to. And that, that becoming the only is a very, very high bar. But that is direction. So, so, so your life is not, it's not a destination. It's a direction. You want oh. to be moving in that direction. You're not like going to that. arrive there until the day before you die. Have you ever seen the movie About Time? It's a no, like romantic comedy kind of movie. I think no, you might like it. Should, should, uh, should I? About time? Yeah, Bill Bill Nye, Nye um okay. bunch of Rachel McAdams. It's it's a pretty well known um okay. romantic comedy. Uh there's a quote in there that I'm gonna butcher. It's something like no amount of money has ever bought a second of time or something like that. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think it's important to think of it in that context because you can have all the money in the world and right, it doesn't right. buy you happiness. It doesn't buy you time. I think I've lived a life where I've been uniquely placed on the financial spectrum where I've made tons of money and I've made zero money. And a lot of times my happiest moments <laughs> are when I'm broke, when I don't know how right, I'm going right, to pay my rent, right, where right, I'm like, right, 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 right. I'm living life to a, a, a higher degree of thought versus, uh, you know, substance. And, you know, when you start realizing that the things in your life don't matter, it's more the people and the experiences. I think you get to that point where you start realizing what truly is important. Right. For right, sure. right. Yeah. I, I say in the book, don't, don't work to acquire work to become. Oh, right. It's, it's all, you know, and I have another bit in there about attend as many funerals as you can stand and listen to what people talk about and say about the departed. And, very rarely will they talk about the departed's achievements. Mm. Mostly what they talk about is how that person was a character, how, how they made them feel what they, what kind of a person they were on the way to achievements. And so, um, and so, yes. Yeah, so, so, so um, another bit Do of you advice think is there's a reason why loss and negative outcomes and experiences in life are more of a pushing or motivating factor for someone. Yeah. What is it about the negative in life that is yeah, more yeah. motivational than success? Yeah, and this is, by the way, well proven. There are lots of scientific studies showing that loss aversion is a bigger motivator than, than the winnings. And um, I'm not sure what the 
basic human element if that causes that, but the, what you say is true. And people are seem to be generally much more motivated by fear, fear of losing something, fear of that, than they are by the possible gains. And that's one of the marks of the entrepreneurial successful ones is that they kind of maintain that vision of the the potential upside, the gain, and um, are willing to accept those losses as as a as a price or a tax to to pay. So I I I think that I, I say fear. The antidote to fear is actually not bravery; it's imagination. It's, mm. it's being able to imagine alternative and imagine. It's, it's, it's much easier. Entrepreneur, just in terms of entropy, it's much easier to imagine how things break down and don't work. Because things that work are highly more improbable. The the things breaking is the problem. Things breaking down, that's all the probable. So we can easily see all the ways that things don't work, all the ways that things are harmed, all the ways that things collapsed. The things that work are more improbable. They're harder to see. So we need to have an imagine, we, we need to unleash our imagination to forget what we think we know, to imagine the possibility of something working. And that's why it's the optimists who shape the future because they see something that seems improbable, but they truly can see it and then they can imagine it being real and believing that it can be real. And they're the ones who make it. So our life in retrospect is created by all these optimists who believe, who had imagination, who overcome the fear and the likelihood of things not working. Because that is the that is the state. So it's it's to me, it's unleashing our imagination, which everybody has and is free. To, to to imagine alternative ways of, of being things, of doing things, to imagine yourself in a different position, and to realize that, yes, most of the ways forward are going to be failures. That is the common probable thing. But we have a choice. We have choices. And we can choose not to be outraged today. We don't have to be engaged in every argument that we're invited into. We can actually choose to receive we can choose to be grateful those are all things we have different levels natural i mean i'm genetically naturally optimistic but i have deliberately chosen to be even more optimistic and everybody is the same you can you don't have the same amount of athletic things but you can be a little bit better we can always improve whatever it is we can always get a little better than we are and so we can move a little bit in that direction and that's what our life may be. It's just little tiny bits, incremental, a little bit better than last year, 1% better than last year. We do that every year. Success. I'm curious, um, you know, 20 year old Gavin, you know, however yeah, yeah. old you were when you initially dropped out of college, right, right. Um, the imagination that you had for yourself right, and your right. life. How has your own expectations and reality matched or been completely different from your own thought process? So when you, the day you step out off that campus and you're like, I'm not doing this anymore to today, sitting here having this conversation with me. So, so I was very influenced by the whole earth catalog, which came out in, in high school. And there I saw people who who were talking about and seemed to have an alternative path in the world. It was seeing them and hearing the conversation and what they were doing that gave me the permission 
to believe, to imagine alternative than to going to college and working for a corporation. It was like, oh, that's possible. Wow. Then I once went to Asia. It was like, okay, I see. There's huge possibilities here that I was not even aware of. I mean, wow, it's really big. So, um, but it was, it was having that kind of role model or just having some or else give that permission for my imagination to imagine. So again, I was imagining a kind of a hippie version of myself of building my own house. That was my dream, which I did building my own house and doing all the stuff myself. I would do it yourself or I was going to, I had, I had whole plans when I was 12 years old of doing a recycled house, a house that didn't have any garbage. That was the, that was the thing that was like really working on was I want a house that there's no garbage, nothing get thrown out. So, um, I, I, I saw that was possible on that. And, and, and so, so my, I imagine again, me being kind of a poor hippie guy with a garden, you know, some kids, and, but we're making everything myself, a do it yourself paradise. That was what I was imagining that we're going to go. I did not imagine myself being in tech. I had no interest in technology at that time. Computers were something my father did. I had no interest in that. It was, um, no, so so I would have been really surprised about where I am right now. I I don't I, I did not imagine that whatsoever in any capacity. Um, living in San Francisco, I was I grew up in New Jersey. Okay, nice. I I grew up in what New part? Jersey, Westfield. Oh, nice. North, okay, North Jersey near New York. Yeah, North. I live in Montclair. There you go. So um, so I so I was imagining myself being maybe in. Pennsylvania or at the, at the most. <laughs> and, uh, and so, my, cause all my, all my relatives are in Pennsylvania. So Philly. So, um, yeah, so, so, so no, I, I did not imagine that. And, but, but at that time, but as I went along, I think I, as I got older and closer, I, I shifted what my, what I imagined I wanted. And, um, uh, so, so I think as tech became, you know, more of my life and talking about it. Um, I could imagine a different world. You know, when I was 20, there was no internet. The idea of like living in a little tiny town, you, that was a huge trade-off because you were going to be, be, be dependent on the local bookstore or whatever it was for books. And it's like, that. no, there was a very different idea of what life would have been. Because there was no internet. I mean, and that's almost hard to believe at this point. Mm -hmm. Well, you're sort of sandwiched between two, you know, titanic shifts in technology, I would say. Mm -hmm. The advent of the internet and sort of this new AI wave yeah, that we're yeah. going to very shortly be experiencing. And mm -hmm. I would imagine it's going to rapidly unfold over the next, you know, three to 10 years, et cetera. Yep. Um, yep. Having had a ton of experience in the technology sector, working for places like Wired, mm -hmm. when you look at the prospect of AI and all that it can do to be both beneficial and possibly uh, not yeah. so beneficial for uh -huh. society, what are your thoughts on that? I am so excited by it. It's just phenomenal. It does remind me, I mean, the, the, the pace of things happening right now, reminds me very much of the beginning of the web in the 90s not the internet but the web 92 and beyond um and and for very similar reasons so the the thing about the web when the web came was a lot of people think that the web was the internet but there was there was an internet going on 
entirely and all the kinds of things that we associated the web we were doing already the web was this beautiful interface it was this visual interface to what until that moment it was like text and you were typing and there was code command lines and it was just really off-putting but then there was suddenly there was this visual interface to it and everybody goes i get it okay i got it i want to be there the same thing with ai all the things that these new generative ai are doing have been done for for 10 years what's new the big bang is the fact that we now have a conversational interface to it mm -hmm. not just talking like like a siri but conversational we can go back and forth and that is transformative so we can have a conversational interface to an ai that can generate images and photography wow or or, or questions so that's the big bang and we're just now going to take that interface to that kind of different kinds of smartness and put it into everything as fast as we can. And that's going to transform because we're going to have these, everything we're going to be having conversations with everything. And mm -hmm. what we're making, um, what the web gave us was kind of the universal librarian, the Google, the search, which was very highly refined and you had only a few librarians able to search. Now we're, we're getting the universal intern universal personal intern with UPIs, I call them, with these generative things where we're, everybody on the planet will have as many interns working for them as they want. You always have to check their work. Releasing the intern works by itself is embarrassing. It's, a, it's, it's an intern. You've got you've to check their work and work with them. And they're great for many things, but you don't want to release the work as your own because they're working for you and with you. And that, I think, From is going to be... Huge, yeah, huge, it's huge. crazy. From a from a time horizon perspective, what do you think in terms of going from intern to professor from a technology perspective? How long will it take for an AI to go from, you know, level one to PhD doctoral experience, having full on intuitive conversations and generative opportunities? Even when they're at the level of professor, they're still going to be your intern. Mm. They're still going to they still will be, I call them artificial aliens. They're going to be like, you know, like Spock. So Spock <laughs> is above professor level, but it is not quite human. And if your audience is humans, you're going to have to be involved. Mm -hmm. Okay. They're a sense of humor. They're going to be funny. They're going to write jokes, but they're going to be like, hmm, that's a little alien. Cold calculating, yeah. Or alien, just kind of like that. Oh, no human would think of that. Um, <laughs> and, and, and they'll have emotions, but they're going to be slightly alien. And that's the whole thing. Is that, And that's not a bug. That's a feature. The reason why we want them to be alien is because they're going to have us think differently. So together with you and Spock, Kirk and Spock, they're going to come up with ideas that neither one of them alone could do. And so we don't want Spock. It's like, no, he—he's fun, but you need to be. He's not going to be writing the symphonies that we're all going to listen to. He's not going to be doing the this avant-garde fashion photography. It'll be the thing about these professors and whatever there is is they're going to give us the they're going to be trained on the average of human. So they're kind of like they're middle. They're kind of the wisdom of the crowd, average, and we have to kind of. You have to kind of work with them to get them out of their average zone. No matter how smart they are, they're built differently than us. They're artificial aliens. 
And so together, as long as our audience are humans, if we're ma making stuff for other aliens, fine. They'll, they'll <laughs> do great. But if their audience is humans, we want humans involved because we have a really good sense of what might turn you on, what might excite you. And um, I think that's a very digestible and yeah, yeah, I think that's a very digestible analogy because it puts into like practical sense for people to kind of understand of of where it's at. And uh, I think that that works. Um, I'm curious, like I, I talk a lot about how we go through our seasons of our lives, mm -hmm. um, you know, chapters, stories, mm -hmm. three act plays, however you want to sort of equate it. Um, at 68 years old, there's evidence to suggest that you're entering the final act of your story. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm curious, um, as a person who just completed another book, as a person who remains yeah, ex yeah. extremely active, um, from, from a, a work perspective, right. what do you hope for? What do you dream for? What are you looking forward to in that, uh, that final session of, of your life? Yeah. yeah. One of the things uh, I'm 71. One of the things I learned from my mentor, Stuart Brand, who's 85, 86, maybe. Um, is to think in terms of five-year increments. So so I think this is a piece of advice, is that um, most, I'm a very project-oriented person. I've become very project-oriented rather than career-oriented. So I have a series of projects. And most projects that are worthwhile projects um, take five years from the first moment when they're conceived to the moment you've abandoned them forever. It's five years. Whether it's a book, like, you know, I'm, I'll be dealing with this for years, plus the kind of uh, up, you know, the 68 and going forth. So it'll be a five-year project when all is said and done. And so um, counting back, I can see I have, a, I have a very small handful of future projects. So I'm very, very aware of it. In fact, I have a countdown clock um, running with how many days I have left. And this wow. was this was formed by um, I'd go to the actuarial tables and look to see what a person born my year was in male um, estimated to live. The insurance companies have all that figured out, and then I turn that into a number of days, and then I have a clock that shows how many days I have left, and it's very sobering because it's like five thousand eight hundred and something I haven't checked days left to do everything I want to do now. That's just average. I, what's interesting is that because of um, the longer you live, curiously, the longer you, you, the longer you're likely to live. Like if you make it to like seventy-one, you have a higher chance of like making it to ninety than if you are only sixty-eight or whatever. So, mm -hmm. so, so recently, the the number of days I've changed year by year has not been changing that much because every year I update it. I can gain a couple of days in a sense of gain back some. So anyway, the point is, is that who knows how long I'm going to live. But, but that idea that they have a limited number of days is very, very galvanizing to me. And by the way, oh, a little bit of gossip was that uh, Matt Groening um, heard me. Uh, I was telling him about this thing and he worked that into Futurama. So in Futurama, there's an episode where Bender and all, they have this countdown clock. Because how many days I have left? I thought that was pretty funny. I think I remember that one. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. That was that was based on my countdown clock. So, so I I do that to help me focus and 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 remain sober. So, you know, I do have a limited, and what what I'm doing is I just have a bunch of projects still that I hope to finish, and um, I'm I'm not going to retire because 
I've never worked. I mean, I'm, I've always been retired or never been retired. I don't know what it is. I don't make much <laughs> distinction between what I do for work or for play. It's exactly the same thing. That to me is success, by the way. That's my definition. And so um, uh, I just have a, I have a bunch of projects. I hope I can get to them. Um, I'm working, uh, you know, towards that. And that's, that's what it is. It's, um, you know, maybe, maybe I have two more projects in, maybe three. So I, I'm kind of got to pick them very carefully. And one of the questions that I ask, so, so, you know, for any young person, if, if, if you can reach the Holy Trinity of a job, which is the Holy Trinity is like, do I really love doing this? Am I really good at this? And can I get paid? Is it value to others? Can I get paid for it? And for most people, if they can arrive at that position of like a job that they love, that they're really good at, and they get paid, like okay, that's that's the peak. But it actually, turns out that there's another level above that, and that there's another level, which is a fourth thing. And that took me again a long time to get to, and I kind of realized it later. It came through working at Wired. And that fourth level was, um, can anybody else do this? Okay. Um, because I would get plenty of, of opportunities. Once you kind of reach the Holy Trinity, you start to get more opportunities than you have time for. You don't have enough days left. And so the question I would begin to ask myself is, um, do I love doing it? Am I good at it? Will I get paid for it? Can anybody else do it? If there's somebody else could do it, I don't want to do it. I only want to do the things that only I can do because that's what I'm here for. And so I would turn down things that other people could do. I would also um, talk about what I'm doing to try to give away all my ideas, hoping somebody would steal them. I tell everybody what I'm working on because if you steal them and do it, that means I don't, I don't, I didn't have to do that one because someone else could do that. I'm only going to be left with the ones that, that nobody wants to do or nobody can do that I think are good. I'm good at, and I get paid to that's me. That's me. That's what I'm about because, and when I'm doing that, it's easy because it seems like play it's, and there's no competition. I don't have to worry about other people running away. I've been trying to give it away for years. Nobody will take it. I don't have to worry about that. There's no competition and it's me. So I have become not the best, but the only. Oh, I fucking love that. Wow. I can't tell you how much I love that. I think about that is probably the best piece of advice I've received and received this year for sure. Right. I like that a lot. So I hope you, I hope you, fantastic. Be, I hope you set on your path <laughs> to become the only. I love that. So um, Kevin, ask yourself if, if there's something, if I'm doing something can right now, the thing I'm doing, can anybody else do, or can I make it in a way so nobody else would do it? my way and that's where you'll be at ease and um and, and by the way this is a really high bar this is an incredibly high bar very few people are going to arrive at that this is just a direction that you want to head into and it'll take you years probably to get there but that's okay yeah head in that direction it's the journey that's what it's all yeah. about um it's the journey kevin i'm 
I'm super happy that uh, you reached out to me and we were able to have this conversation. I have a very cheesy line. If you've been on my podcast, you're part of my family. I'm very looking forward to reading uh, your new book. And I'm incredibly appreciative that you took the time out to uh, come chat with me today. And uh, thank you so much. You're very, very welcome, John. Thank you for your great hosting, your great questions. I wish you the best in, in defining your own success. And thank you for inviting me. I appreciate it. My pleasure.